Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. We're continuing our marathon series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, today is part 40. Uh, we're going to look today at Yeshua's most horrifying, yet most profound words from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So turn with me to Mark 15, beginning in verse 33. Mark 15, verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land uh, until 3 p.m. And at 3 in the afternoon, Yeshua cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling for Eliyahu, Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Yeshua to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Yeshua breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Yeshua, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Amen. Well, we've been going through the gospel of Mark verse by verse uh, for this entire past year. And here we get to the, to the actual moment of his death. Now, all four gospel writers point out that all the last events of Yeshua's death on the cross happened uh, in the dark. Uh, the betrayal, the denial, the mistrial, all happened at night. Now we get to the actual moment of Yeshua's death uh, and an inexplicable, mysterious darkness descends over the land at high noon, lasting for three hours, paralleling the three days of darkness in Egypt uh, during the ninth plague. So from 12 noon to 3 p.m. Uh, in Israel, it was absolutely dark. Now, this was no ordinary darkness. Some people have tried to claim, well, maybe this was just an eclipse. But a solar eclipse does not create absolute darkness for actually for more than a few minutes, certainly not for three hours. Moreover, Pesach, uh, the time of the crucifixion, occurs at the full moon, and a solar eclipse cannot happen during a full moon. Others have said, well, maybe it was a Sirocco, one of these uh, desert sandstorms that can obscure the sun for hours or even days on end. But again, this is the, re this is the wet season, the rainy season in, at Pesach in Israel. Sirocco's do not occur at that time. This was a supernatural darkness, and it means something. It signifies something. It points to three things we'll put on the overhead. Number one, it points to the darkness that we have within us. Number two, the darkness that Yeshua experienced spiritually. And three, how Yeshua's darkness can dispel ours. First, the darkness that we have within us. Physical darkness in the Bible represents spiritual darkness. When Yeshua was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read this in Luke 22, 52. Then Yeshua said to the chief priests and the temple guard officers and the elders who had come for him, this is your hour when darkness reigns. 
Yeshua is using this word darkness here as a metaphor uh, for spiritual warfare uh, and for everything that's wrong with us, for everything that's wrong with the world, for everything that's wrong with the human race. On the, on the overhead, physical darkness in the Bible is a metaphor for spiritual darkness. And what is that spiritual darkness? Well, first of all, uh, when the Bible uh, talks about spiritual darkness, it's referring to our turning away uh, and facing something besides God as the center of our life. As the center of our life. Turning away from the Lord as our true light uh, and facing something else as the center of our life. God is likened in the Bible to the sun, S-U-N. The sun is the source of truth because by it we see everything else. The sun is the source of life because without it, everything withers and dies. And therefore, God, the Bible says, is the source of all truth and all life. If you orbit around God, if you center on the sun, as it were, then your life has truth and life and light in it. But if you center on anything else, if you, if you turn away from the Lord, if you make anything else the center of your life, if you orbit around anything else, if there's anything else more important in your life than Yeshua, if there's anything else you make the source of your warmth, uh, the source of your hope, the source of your career is more important to you uh, than God, if a relationship is more important to you uh, than the Lord, if your family is more important than God, if anything is more important to you than Messiah, you may come to shul, you may even take notes during the rabbi's drash, you may believe in God, but if there's anything more important to you than Yeshua as the real center of your life, then the result is spiritual darkness on the overhead. It doesn't matter what it is, but if you're turning away functionally in your heart, away from the truth, away from the life, away from Yeshua as the center of your life, the result is spiritual darkness. Now, what do we mean by spiritual darkness? First, to make anything else more important in your life than the Lord leads to spiritual disorientation from the overhead. Number one, darkness brings disorientation. Uh, in the modern age in which we live, we rarely have ever experienced total darkness. Even if you go all the way out into the country, there's almost always some kind of towns nearby uh, with electric lights. So we today in our modern world really don't know what, it's, what real darkness is. But if you're in absolute and complete, total, utter darkness, so you, so you can't see anything. You can't see an inch in front of you. You can't even see your own hand. If you've ever been in darkness, that absolute and total, and if you stay in it for any length of time, it has a horrible effect on you. To stay in utter darkness for a long time is, is radically disorienting. Ernest Shackleton was a British explorer who in 1914 was the first one ever to take a ship to Antarctica uh, to explore the, the frozen uh, wasteland there, the continent. But his ship got caught in the polar ice uh, and it was crushed. And over the next several months, they were trapped. Uh, they actually survived, much to everyone's surprise. Uh, and of all the problems they faced, starvation, incredibly cold weather, the worst thing they said was the darkness. Because of the South Pole, the days in the summer get shorter and shorter, uh, uh, and in mid-May, the sun goes down totally uh, and doesn't come back up again until August. There's no daytime, no sunlight for three months. 
in, in the, on the overhead, in the story, they write this. In all the world, there's no desolation more complete than the polar night. No warmth, no light, no movement. Only those who experienced it can know what it means to be without sun, day after day, week after week. Few unaccustomed to, to it can, can fight off its effects altogether. And it's driven some men mad. And if you're in absolute darkness for any length of time, you become radically disoriented. Why? Physical darkness and spiritual darkness are similar. In physical darkness, you can't see forward. Uh, you don't know where you're going. Uh, you can't even see yourself. You don't know where your body parts are. You don't know what you look like. You can't tell if anyone else is around you, friend or foe. Uh, you're utterly isolated. In absolute darkness, you can't see forward, you can't see yourself, you can't see anybody else. And spiritually, if you center on anything but God, the same thing happens. That's spiritual darkness. If anything but the Lord is more important to you on the overhead here, first of all, you have a problem with purpose. You have a problem with, with knowing where you're going. Living for money, living for career, living for love, living for family, living for power, living for pleasure, living for fame. I notice some of these things I named are very good things. If you're living for any of these for a period of time, you feel like, well, hey, I've got something to live for. But ironically, if you actually get it, in the long run, it's the worst thing possible. If you actually get the things in your life that you're after, you eventually realize it's not big enough for you. For you. It's not big enough for your soul. There's not enough. You start to experience meaninglessness, uh, purposelessness, and that's a part of spiritual darkness. On the overhead, second, if you center on anything other than Yeshua, you also have a loss of identity. You have an identity that, that's fragile. Uh, you have an identity that's insecure because it's based on, on these things you're centering your life on. It's based on human approval. It's based on how well you perform. Uh, you don't know who you are. And you're always insecure about who you are. Uh, so on the overhead, spiritual darkness means, number one, you can't see forward. Uh, number two, you can't see yourself. And number three, you're isolated. Uh, you're so wrapped up in the things you're living for, they're either scaring you or, or making you angry or making you proud or making you full of self-pity or making you driven, that as a result, it isolates you from other people. Uh, it removes your relationships, spiritual darkness, radical disorientation. Uh, it comes from turning away from God, who's the true light, and making anything else more important than him in your life. So from the overhead. Spiritual darkness finally leads ultimately to disintegration. Disintegration. In the Bible, darkness and disintegration go together. Now, if you take something away from the light for, for, any, for any length of time, for a long enough time, you take a plant out of the light for a long enough period of time, it dies, it withers, it falls apart. But the Bible is talking about something even more drastic than that. If you go back to the beginning of time, to Genesis 1-1, Genesis 1-2, it tells you what there was actually in the, in the verse before that. I'll call it Genesis 1-0, <laughs> what it was like. So look at Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. There was emptiness, there was formlessness, 
uh, there was chaos, and everything was darkness. These all go together. Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Creation, the creation account tells us that you know, when, when God exercises power, light triumphs over darkness. Order triumphed over chaos. Uh, and now God has brought creation and light and order and life where before there was chaos and disorder and darkness and disintegration. But the scriptures tell us when you move away from God, and to the degree you move away from God, if you move away from God in any way, spiritual darkness results. And spiritual darkness is not just disorientation, it's also disintegration. Uh, it's also chaos. You're actually moving back towards uncreation. You're moving back towards darkness. You're moving back towards disorder and disorientation and disintegration. So how does this work in someone's life? Let me use myself uh, as a guinea pig. Uh, I want to be a good pastor and a good, and a good rabbi and a good preacher. You want to be a good fill-in-the-blank. But if it becomes more important than God to me, uh, you see, anything, even good things, can become an idol. Uh, uh, if, if how I'm doing, you know, as a messianic rabbi, if that becomes my real source of life and warmth, uh, my real hope, my real significance, uh, my real security and identity, more important than God and his love for me in Yeshua, then I will experience disintegration. And then criticism comes, uh, and then I'm not only discouraged, but, uh, but uh, you know, if being a good spiritual leader is my ultimate identity, then criticism is devastating. Or when I fail to perform or, or live up to my own expectations or live up to my own standards, I'm devastated. Disintegration, guilt, inordinate guilt, churning inside. Or let's say two people love each other. That's wonderful. But if they love each other more than they love God, if they build their lives more on each other's love uh, than they do on God's love, then minor fights become major fights. And major fights become world-shaking cataclysms. Because you can't take the other person's displeasure. You can't take it. You can't take the other person's failure. You can't take it. Your, your very world is shaken. Because if you center your life on anything but God, uh, the spiritual darkness that comes into your life isn't just radical disorientation, but also utter disintegration. Now, of course, this only happens partially uh, in this life. As Hebrew 1 tells us, Hebrews chapter 1, Yeshua is still holding this world together by the word of his power. In spite of sin, in spite of evil, in spite of, of how we're living away from God, he nonetheless, he holds all things together. The disintegration we experience in this life is only partial. But what does the Bible say will happen when God finally gives the human race what it really wants? You know what mankind really wants? We want to be free to live our lives as we please. We want to be free from his presence. We want the Lord to leave us alone. And when he grants us our wish, and finally does that, the disintegration will be total. In the book of Exodus, we're coming up on Pesach, the book of Exodus recounts the 10 plagues of Egypt. What were these plagues? They were foretastes of Judgment Day. They were foretastes of God removing himself and giving us what we want. 
And the world going back to Genesis 1-0, going back to the horror of uncreation, darkness, chaos, formless, void. When Moses raises up uh, the rod of God's justice uh, over Egypt, they begin to experience the horrors of those plagues of uncreation. So, for example, water no longer worked as water. Uh, it became blood. The sun didn't work as light. Uh, there was absolute darkness for three days. Uh, uh, there was lice and gnats and flies and frogs and cattle disease and boils and locusts. Nature didn't work as nature. And then finally, the death of the firstborn. What was all of that? It was the horror of uncreation. It was going back to Genesis 1-0. It was a foretaste of judgment day. And all the prophets say, when, when God finally gives the human race what it wants, it will be judgment day, doomsday. And do, do you see how fair this is? God's only giving us what we want, to be free from him and from his son. But if he gives us what we want, if he pulls away, the result will be chaos and disintegration. Formlessness, void, emptiness, darkness. Going back to Genesis 1-0. So for example, Jeremiah 4 talks about the day of the Lord, judgment day. On the overhead, he says this, Jeremiah 4.23. I looked at the earth. It was formless and empty. The, Hebrew, the actual Hebrew here is tohu vavohu. You know, the exact same phrase as Genesis 1-2. Uh, and I looked at the, uh, at the heavens, and their light was gone. Here's how Isaiah describes judgment day. Isaiah uh, 13, verse 9. See, the day of the Lord's judgment is coming to make the land desolate. Uh, the rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Uh, I'll put an end to the arrogance of the haughty, and I'll humble the pride uh, of, of, uh, of the ruthless. I'll make the heavens tremble. The earth will shake. From its, shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. So in the overhead, point one, darkness tells us about the darkness we have within us. Uh, point two, darkness also tells us about the darkness that Yeshua received uh, on the tree, on the execution stake, on the cross. Look at Mark 15, verse 34. Uh, at the ninth hour, Yeshua cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening? What's going on? On the one hand, the darkness comes down because Yeshua is experiencing the full range of human evil. Everything human beings can throw at someone, every bit of evil that the world can throw has been thrown at Yeshua. He's been rejected by his people. The religious leaders have plotted to kill him. One of his own disciples has betrayed him. He's been sacrificed to political expediency by the Roman government. He's a victim of injustice. He's been abandoned by his closest friends who are more interested in saving their own skin. Relational betrayal. He's been brutally tortured. Uh, he's been stripped naked and humiliated. Uh, he's been killed in a horrifically painful death. That's everything. He's suffering everything that human evil can throw at him but that's not all that he's getting. That's not, he's not just getting human evil. Remember, this is a supernatural darkness that comes over the land of the sixth hour till the ninth hour. And when Yeshua starts crying out, notice he doesn't say, my friends, my friends, why have you abandoned me? 
And in terms of his pain, he doesn't cry out, my head, my head, my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet. No. He says, my God, my God. He's losing God on the overhead. What is this darkness? What's coming down on him? It's this, our judgment day. Our judgment day is coming down on him. The rod of God's wrath is being stretched out, and now all the plagues, the horror of, of uncreation, are coming down on him. His blood and his water flow mingled down. He's experiencing the darkness, spiritual darkness, as our sins are placed on him, imputed to him. He bears them and becomes our sin and guilt offering. Cosmic darkness is coming down on him, and the father turns his back on his son. Yeshua is getting our judgment day. It's falling on him. Yeah, Hebrews 1 says, in Yeshua, all things hold together. But Yeshua is now unraveling. Uh, he's being engulfed in eternal darkness. He's experiencing the absolute infinite disintegration and unraveling of both soul and body. This is astounding because Yeshua is the maker of the world now being unmade. Here's the creator of the world and he, he comes to our rebellious earth and instead of inflicting the horrors of uncreation on, on sinful man, the horrors of the darkness of uncreation on we sinners that we deserve, he bears them himself. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 sums it all up. He who knew no sin became sin for us, or became a sin offering for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, Yeshua is getting our judgment day. It's coming down on him. As horrible as it is to have a spear in your side, as horrible as it is to die of suffocation, as horrible as it is to be tortured and beaten and a crown of thorns on your head uh, and nails to your hands and your feet, notice he doesn't say a thing about that. He doesn't say a thing about it. Because compared to the spiritual darkness, compared to becoming sin for us, compared to God the Father forsaking him, this is a flea bite. Yeshua is experiencing judgment day. The cosmic horror of uncreation coming down on him. The judgment day we deserve coming on him. That's point two. It's on the overhead. Number one, we have the darkness within us. Number two, the darkness Yeshua experienced on the cross. And now number three, how Yeshua's darkness can dispel ours. The climax of the whole Gospel of Mark shows us that the darkness that Yeshua experienced can dispel the darkness in our hearts. Yeshua's darkness can break open and remove and dispel our darkness. So look at Mark 15, 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Yeshua heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. You know, in the temple, you have the Holy of Holies that was walled off from the holy place by this huge, incredibly thick curtain. Uh, thick is one of those old telephone books, if you remember them. It separated the, the, the uh, Holy of Holies, the place of God's presence, with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. It separated that from the rest of the temple. And only, only the holiest man 
the Kohen Hagador, the high priest, wearing special holy garments of white linen on the holiest day, Yom Kippur, on behalf of God's holy people, the Jews, the holy city of Yerushalayim, with a, with a blood sacrifice, could ever enter that holy of holies, this one day a year, to make atonement for the people. But the moment Yeshua died, this incredibly thick veil, this curtain, separating God's presence from the people, was ripped in two. Supernaturally ripped from, from top to bottom. The signifying that access to God has now been achieved. And direct access for all people is now available through the blood of Messiah. This is God's way of saying, this is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And now anyone can go into my presence. The barrier is gone. Note, note that at the very same time, while Yeshua hung on the cross, the Pesach lambs were being sacrificed in the temple. The exact same time. Uh, and the white plastered altar in the temple soon ran red with the blood of those lambs. And what happened next, the priests then suspended uh, the dead lambs from hooks uh, on wooden poles and, and they spread the forearms of the lambs in a crucifixion pose as they skinned the animals and prepared them for roasting. And all this is documented, by the way, uh, in, in the Mishnah, Pesachim 5.9, if you want to look up the reference. And after preparing the lambs, uh, they tied the animal's feet to a wooden pole, suspended over the shoulders of two men, who then carried it off to the community ovens uh, for roasting. Do, on the overhead here, do you see all the parallels with Yeshua? The Pesach lambs in the temple, suspended in a crucifixion pose for skinning, and then placed on a wooden pole to carry them off. Yeshua is our Pesach lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everything in the scriptures is all about him. And as the Pesach lambs were being slaughtered in the temple courts, the Levitical choir would have been singing the Hallel Psalms, which ends with Psalm 118, beginning in verse 22, says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it, has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. As the last of the Pesach lambs were being sacrificed, Yeshua, the Lamb of God, died at the exact same hour, the ninth hour. And the veil in the temple immediately is rent in two from top to bottom, uh, Jewish scholar, he's not Messianic, but Jewish scholar David Dalby likens this to a Jewish mourning rite at a funeral where we rip our garments in sorrow. It's a picture of God the Father, as it were, mourning for his only son. The temple curtain can be likened to the garment of God, Dalby writes. Indeed, actually, the Aramaic word for the temple veil, paragod, uh, also can mean a tunic. But more than a picture of God mourning, the rending of the veil in the temple most of all is the victorious answer to Yeshua's cry back in Mark 15, 34, quoting Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the victorious answer. The rending of the veil is the Father's reply. God has not forsaken his son, the Messiah. Just as, just as God tore over the heavens at Yeshua's immersion, his baptism, and declared in Matthew 3.17, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. So also, now God tears back the curtain to receive his son. 
indicating he has not forsaken him on the cross. The book of Hebrews likens this veil to a picture of Yeshua's body uh, being torn for us to give us access to God. So Hebrews 10 verse 19 says this, therefore brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Yeshua, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The rending of the veil is a picture of Yeshua rending his flesh. And the result is that now we have access to God. And this is further symbolized uh, by noting that the veil in the temple bore the image of two cherubim, uh, the cherubim. Just like the two cherubim who stood as sentry guarding their way back to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Look at Genesis 3, verse 24. At the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. The death of Messiah tore the curtain asunder, making a way between those cherubim, indicating the death, that his death has now provided a way to God and the tree of life, the Etzchayim. And the first witness of all of this was the Roman centurion. He's, and the, he's, the, he's the first guy who enters through this ripped curtain, if you will, and exclaims in Mark 15, 39, surely this man was the son of God. And this brings us full circle back to the beginning of the book of Mark, which opens with Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the good news about Yeshua the Messiah, the son of God. And now the centurion says, coming full circle, this is the son of God. Mark tells us right up front his main theme. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, Yeshua is the Son of God. But interestingly, no human being in the book of Mark up to this point has ever figured it out. All through the Gospel of Mark, Yeshua has been, um, he's been delivering these incredible teachings. He's been performing these amazing supernatural miracles. And everyone keeps asking, who is this? Who is this? So, for example, in Mark 4, 41, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And in the Gospel of Mark, the first man to finally get it, it's this, ironically, it's this Roman centurion. Uh, note that he is a pagan Gentile. He's a Roman. He says again, Mark 15, 39, surely this man was the son of God. And for Roman, by the way, the title son of God was only used for Caesar. On every Roman coin was the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, the son of the divine Augustus. The only person that a Roman would ever say was, was the son of God was Caesar. But here, this centurion says Yeshua is the son of God. And this is Mark's way of showing us what the ripping of the veil in the temple means. Yeshua's death was a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. You do not have to be perfectly holy. Anyone now uh, can, can, can connect with God. Indeed, look who this guy is. Mark's trying to tell us, anyone, look who this guy is. He's, he's not a disciple. He's not even a Jew. Uh, he makes his living killing and torturing people. Spiritually, he's dark. He doesn't know the Bible. He does not know the one true God of Israel. The centurions, they, they were not aristocrats like the officers in the, in the British army. No, centurions were enlisted men who had risen up through the ranks. They were working class people, tough as nails, very hard characters, incredibly hardened. A centurion had seen much death and had inflicted much death, up close and personal. 
So here's a hard character, uh, a brutal person. He lived in absolute spiritual darkness, and yet something penetrated his soul. He becomes the first person to confess Yeshua as the Son of God. It's a whole new world. But here's the question, why? Why? What penetrated his darkness? This is what we're told in Mark 15, 39. And when the centurion who, had stu who stood there in front of Yeshua heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Now, there's really only one or two people I've actually ever seen die. You know, today, most of the people don't actually see somebody die anymore. But this centurion, he'd seen hundreds, probably thousands of people die. He's probably personally killed a lot of them. <laughs> he was a brutal, battle-hardened man. He'd seen lots of death. But this death was utterly unique. He saw something about Yeshua's death that was unlike any other death he had ever seen. The tenderness of Yeshua's death must have pierced right through his hardness. And the beauty of Yeshua's death must have pierced right through his darkness. What did he see? Mark hints at it. Uh, the text says uh, he heard his cry. What cry? Mark 15, 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you think about what this cry means, you can see you today can see this same beauty. You can see the same tenderness. You can have your darkness lifted. You can have your hardness melted. You can have your life changed. Just like the centurion's life was changed. If you listen to Yeshua's cry from the cross, this cry, Mark 15, 34, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First, when, when Yeshua says, my God, my God, Mark is showing us Yeshua suffered more than anyone else has ever suffered. Notice what he says, my God. That's the language of intimacy. My God, you've forsaken me. Now, if after the service, one of you comes up to me and says, I never want to see you again. I never want to talk to you again. I'll feel pretty bad. And if it's one of my board members, I'll be shocked. I'll be hurt. Uh, but if, if my wife Elizabeth, God forbid, would ever say that to me, I would be totally devastated. To lose a spouse in death or divorce, all the psychologists would tell you, is the most traumatic thing that could ever happen to you. Because the longer the love and the deeper the love, the greater the torment of its loss. There is no torment like the loss of love. There is nothing like the loss of love. But look at Yeshua's cry of being forsaken. This is the Father and the Son. They've been perfectly loving each other from all eternity. The greatest love between two human beings in the history of the world is nothing compared to this. This love, it's infinitely long. It's infinitely perfect, infinitely deep and intimate. And Yeshua is losing that on the cross. That's why he's not saying, oh, my hands, my hands, or my feet, my feet, or my head, my head. None of these are like the loss of love. And no loss of love has ever been like this. He is in hell. No one has ever suffered like this. No one on the overhead. 
That's the first thing we see in this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one has ever suffered like this. Secondly, we see no one has ever obeyed God like this. No one has ever suffered like this, but second, no one has ever obeyed God like this. You know, because to every other person that's ever lived in the history of mankind, God has said, if you obey me, you'll live. If you obey me, you'll be blessed. If you give yourself to me, I'll give myself to you. But he did not say that to Yeshua. Just the opposite. Yeshua's trusting God. He doesn't cry out, cruel father. No, he says, my God, my God. And he says this while he's being damned. He's trusting God while he's being damned. This has never happened before. It will never happen again. Yeshua shows perfect love and obedience. In the famous story of Moby Dick, you know, the great white, white, great white whale, as Captain Ahab is going down to his watery grave uh, on the overhead, he yells out at Moby Dick, from hell's heart I stab at thee. Very dramatic. Last lines. But it's just rhetoric. He wasn't literally in hell's heart. He was going under the waves to, to, his, to his death, pursuing the whale uh, to the very end. But here on the cross is someone who really was going into hell's heart, taking on our punishment on the overhead. But what does Yeshua say? In essence, he says, from hell's heart, I still love thee, Father. From hell's heart, I still love you. No one has ever obeyed God like this. No one has ever trusted God like this. No one has ever loved God like this. Okay, why? Why is he enduring infinite suffering? Why is he accomplishing infinite obedience? And the answer is for you and for you and for me, for us and the overhead. Yeshua came to live the life you should have lived and to die the death that you deserve to die and to pay the price you could never pay. He's doing all this in this cry. This is perfect obedience in your place, on your behalf, as your substitute. And the centurion, he heard this cry about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He grasped the beauty of it and it ripped through his heart and ripped through his darkness. And he made this great confession. Surely this man was a son of God. In the same way, if you see the meaning of this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you see him losing infinite love for you, it will melt your hardness as well. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. It'll, it'll open your eyes. It'll shatter your darkness. It'll change your life. You'll finally be able to turn away from all those other things that have been dominating your life. All those other things that have been addicting you. All those other things that have been drawing you off into spiritual darkness. And you'll be able to say, Yeshua, you are the one I want. You are the lover of my soul. My restless heart only finds its rest in you. You're the one I've been after all my life without knowing it. 
Yeshua, you're the one I've been looking for in my work. You're the one I've been looking for in my relationships. You're the one I've been looking for in my romance. You're the one. On the overhead, if you embrace him, Yeshua's infinite darkness can destroy and dispel your inner darkness and give you light and love and life in place of hardness and darkness and death. Application. First, thank you. Thank you very much. Hallelujah. Excuse me. First, if you repent and trust in Yeshua, his grace is open to you, no matter who you are or what you've done. Look at the centurion, a professional killer. It doesn't matter. The curtain's been ripped from top to bottom. The barrier is gone. The way into God is open to you through the blood of Messiah. If the Spirit of God is convicting you, repent today. Second, if you are a Yeshua follower, let me ask you, are you suffering? Are you going through something hard right now? When you suffer, what, what do you typically say? God, why? Why, God, why? Why is this happening to me? Christianity, Messianic Judaism, is the only faith that says God himself actually cried out in suffering, why? Why have you forsaken me? And so when you look at the cross of Messiah in your suffering, it may not tell you exactly why you're going through what you're going through, but it will tell you what the reason is not. It's not because God doesn't love you. It's not because he has no plan for you. It's not because he's abandoned you. The Lord abandoned his son, Yeshua, so that he would never abandon you. I don't know why you're going through what you may be going through. Oh, but the point is, as proven by the cross, it can't be because he doesn't love you or doesn't care for you or have a plan for your life. He does. If you look at the cross, no longer can you go through suffering in the same way. No longer, you, you uh, no longer can talk to God the same way when you realize what he's been through also. You no longer have to fear he's abandoned you or that he doesn't love you because the, pro the cross proves his love for you. And then finally, when you're really in darkness, you're confused, you don't know why things are happening, you don't understand what's going on, know that the only darkness that can destroy you forever fell into his heart. And so whatever darkness you're going through, if you trust in Yeshua, that darkness is only temporary. In my favorite book, Lord of the Rings, when everything is so dark and seemingly hopeless and evil appears so overwhelming, we read this, uh, this account about one of the heroes, uh, Sam Ganji, and I'm with him on the overhead. He says, uh, he looked up to the sky and he saw a star twinkling. The beauty of it smote his heart, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow and darkness was only a small passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. The song back in the tower had been defiance rather than hope. For there he was thinking of himself, but now his own fate ceased to trouble him. Putting away all fear, 
he cast himself into a deep and untroubled sleep. Because of Yeshua's death for you on the cross, there is now an infinite ocean of joy and love waiting for you. Let that truth pierce any darkness you may be going through. Know that evil is only a passing thing. There is light and love and high beauty forever beyond its reach in Yeshua. Today, let the joy of the Lord be your strength. Amen. Hallelujah. Stand and pray. Let the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Father, thank you today. Thank you for this text, Lord, about centering our life on you so that we can walk in the light and no longer dwell in spiritual darkness. We confess, Lord, there, yes, there is an overwhelming spiritual darkness within us without you, Yeshua. So thank you, Yeshua, for taking upon yourself our spiritual darkness. On the cross, you took on our judgment day. You are without sin. You became sin for us. So God the Father forsook you. He turned his back on you. You, Yeshua, endured hell for me so that I may be forgiven, so that I might become the righteousness of God in you. Thank you, Yeshua, for your atoning death, uh, for, for, for uh, rending the veil in the temple and to giving us access to God, to God's presence. That veil is your flesh. By rending your flesh on the cross, we now can enter your kingdom, Yeshua. The tree of death has become the tree of life. The way back to the Garden of Eden has been opened when you underwent that flaming sword for us. You, Yeshua, are the ultimate Pesach lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the rending of the veil in the temple is a demonstration that ultimately God has not forsaken his son. Yeshua, you completed the work. You did it. You are victorious, hallelujah. God the Father is well pleased with you. And as we repent and as we trust in you and walk in your light, you are well pleased with us. Thank you, Lord Yeshua. You are my life. You are the lover of my soul. And I pray this in your name. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.